is Digital Marketer. This week, it's Stefan Tomke. Stefan is an authority on the management of innovation and is the William Barclay Harding Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School. Well, hello, Stefan. How are you? I'm very well. Great to uh, <laughs> meet you, Jenna. Yeah, you as well. I love, you know, you have to start with the first question. How are you? <laughs> you got to get through that. Sure. So, yeah, we're going to be talking about experimentation and specifically like product innovation. Before we kind of get into the new edition of your book and all that good stuff, can you kind of give me an idea of your background and how you got to be such an expert in this? It started many years ago, Jenna. I'm an engineer by background, which should not be surprising. You know, I'm also German, <laughs> Germany, <laughs> and I'm an electrical engineer to be more precise. And I got into experimentation via engineering, actually. It was a, a summer job that got me interested, you know, in 1990, summer of 1990, a long time uh-huh. ago. <laughs> and uh, I got a summer job in a little kind of a factory uh, making, you know, semiconductor waivers, you know, chips. And I got an assignment, you know, they asked me to optimize a process step sort of in that manufacturing process. And I didn't know how to do it because there are just too many things, too many variables. And, mm-hmm. you know, and there was no uh, clear sort of science behind it in terms of how to go about it. And so I was struggling for the first few days trying to figure out how to do this. And then I discovered the power of experiments. I said, well, you know, you don't actually have to know what the answer is. You just have to know how to go about finding the answer. And mm. so I read a couple books, you know, in my summer job. This is a great summer job where you get paid for reading. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I learned how to do experimental design sort of in the engineering field. And then I got really fascinated by the whole process of experimentation. And then after working for a while, went back to grad school at MIT and started to really get into this sort of in a deeper way. Then later, you know, I started to think a lot more about product development, you know, and products and how what role experimentation can play in sort of developing better products that really, you know, resonate with customers. And then from then, I went even further, and not just R&D and product development, and that's kind of more more recent book, you know, thinking about how experimentation can really change the enterprise, specifically how, how marketing kind of changes as well, you know, not just sort of product development, you know, how companies interact with customers, how they find answers, such as, you know, what customers actually want. I mean, we know very well that, you know, when you ask customers, they don't always tell you exactly what they want. Either they, <laughs> either they don't know that they yeah. want or they don't want to admit what they really want. It's what they wish they wanted. <laughs> yes. And sometimes when you put them in a group, in a focus group, they kind of run with a group. But then when you observe their behavior, they do just the opposite of what they just told you. So I thought, you know, wouldn't it be great to just run experiments and observe their behavior, what they really do, rather than what they say they do? And that should give you sort of a lot of the answers to things that we simply don't know. And in some ways, I think experimentation is even more powerful in the field of marketing than even perhaps in engineering. Because in engineering, there's a science to this, right? We have physics, we have chemistry, and it's a lot easier to predict what's likely to happen. 
But I think you know, on the behavioral side, I think that's much more complex trying to predict what customers will do. And so therefore, I think you know, the value of experimentation is even greater in some ways than in engineering, where it, it's pretty much accepted that, that that's the way you do things. Yeah, that makes sense. I think there's also, you know, in an experiment with like a physical model, you can test a million variables and you can do it over and over and over and over. But with marketing experimentation and like prototyping and all that stuff, you can only kind of reach out with one little variable you've tweaked because there's so many different things to test. And then you have a segment of people and you can only show so many people a different thing before everyone's seen Exactly. There's a lot of what we call academic variability out there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and and one person's opinion is not exactly what somebody else wants. And so, you know, and as as you know, there's a big movement into personalization now, you know, in Mm -hmm. marketing. And I think to get to personalization, I think experimentation may be really the only way to go because there are just so many decisions that you have to make with respect to personalizing products or even services that you have to somehow figure out, you have to somehow adjudicate what the decisions are. And mm-hmm. how do you do that, right? With all these touch points, I mean, we've got right now, if you sort of think about sort of the world and how we actually consume products, how we consume content, you know, there are so many channels now. You've got the web, you've got physical stores, you've got mobile. And then, you know, there's so many things that you can do sort of on these channels now. So the number of touch points is exploding. And to me, the big question is then how do companies actually figure out how to optimize all these touch points? I mean, it's overwhelming. You know, nobody can do this with sort of traditional methods anymore. But thankfully, our experimentation tools are getting better as well. And so the only way really to figure all these things out, to optimize all these touch points, to explore is through the power of experiments. So let's dig into that. How do you experiment? Well, let me start out sort of what an experiment is and what it's not. Yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> you know, because, uh, you know, the, the word experiment in the English language has a bit of a casual meaning to it, right? So sometimes it's really more kind of a substitute for, you know, someone saying, you know, I'm trying things. So, you know, when I say, you know, I'm experimenting means I'm, I'm just mm. trying something out, something new. But uh, what I'm talking about here is a much more disciplined and rigorous form of experiments. And, and, and the work is really inspired by the scientific method. And you may not know this, but this year, 2020, is a bit of an auspicious year. In 1620, exactly 400 years ago, Francis Bacon, you know, who's sort of considered to be kind of the father of the scientific method, you know, wrote this book called Novum Organum which kind of became kind of like the foundational book that later sort of then led to the scientific method. And and what he proposed is a new instrument for building and organizing knowledge, right? And later on became known as the scientific method. And an important part of the scientific method, which he identified way back then, 400 years ago, is the, the humble experiment. You know, that if you want to learn how things work what works and doesn't work is you got to run an experiment and that is a disciplined experiment you know with a hypothesis you know with controls with all sorts Mm -hmm. of things you know that sort of make an experiment work and even though you know at the time he was talking about science and scientific knowledge and so forth i think the same kind of thinking the same method can be applied to just about anything that we do given you know sort of the advances in tools and now the ability to do this online and so on. So what's a good experiment? Well, 
in an ideal experiment, you basically have a tester and you have what we call an independent variable, mm -hmm. which is basically the cost. It's something that you're changing, something that you're manipulating. For example, if I'm in sales, you know, maybe the independent variable would be an incentive that I'm giving to my sales force, you know, a bonus mm -hmm. or something like that. And then I have a dependent variable, which is the observed effect. And that would be, for example, the revenue that that salesperson would generate. And then what I want to do is I want to hold everything else constant, right? So I want to only change the tweak that sort of one variable, right? Which in this case would be the bonus. Mm. I want to observe whether that actually leads to an uptick in revenue while everything else is constant. So I want to make sure that no other variable, no other change actually pollutes kind of what I'm looking for because I'm only interested in the cause and effect relationship between these two things. Right. The problem, of course, Jenna, is... I cannot hold everything else constant. I may be able to do it maybe in a biology lab or something like that where I can hold the temperature and everything constant. But in real life, right, with real customers, I can't do that. So how do I go about that? You know, how do I sort of go about the fact that things are changing all the time? Well, I randomize. So what I try to do is when I actually sort of run these tests, I basically sort of have what I would call the controls. That is basically the status quo of what it is today. And then I have, you know, sort of the treatment, which is basically the bonus. And then what I do is I randomly kind of assign this across sort of the different sort of customer populations. And the reason why I do that is I want to distribute any sort of changes, any biases, any variation that I have that could interfere with the experiment. I want to distribute it evenly across so mm -hmm. it doesn't bias one or the other. And so that really is sort of the ideal experiment. And the ultimate measure in an experiment, but we can't really do that here, is kind of what they do in medicine, is they call it double blind. And that is the person who's being experimented on and mm -hmm. the experimenter, they don't even know who's actually part of the experiment, so you don't introduce any additional bias. But it's not always realistic sort of to do that, but that's something right. that we aspire for. So that, Jenna, is an <laughs> ideal experiment, and it's not always intuitive to most people that that's the way you should run it because we often think about observations for example the way we would do this this example that i just gave you right with an incentive for a salesperson what most of us would do is you know we would go out and we would have a period say a four month where basically the salesperson has maybe no bonus and then we would run it again for a month with the salesperson and the bonus and then we would compare sort of the two periods, you know, one month and the next month. But that doesn't really work because during that one month where sort of uh, the salesperson where he or she has the bonus, a lot of other things could change. Right. For example, that person could be sick, maybe has the flu yeah. or have something going on in their lives, family, or the car breaks down mm -hmm. or lots of different things that interfere with their ability to sell things. And so that's what we call an observational study. And that observational studies don't really replicate well. They don't really show us what cause and effect is. Mm -hmm. So that's the reason for running these kinds of side-by-side -side experiments where you have a control that kind of takes care of all the other variables. I hope that helps a little bit. Yeah, yeah. it does a lot. I kept thinking like, man, yeah, if you, you gave it to some people and you made it double blind, some people had it, some people didn't. They still talk. 
<laughs> yeah, you can do that. Like, if you, Jenna, if you do an in-store experiment, for example, I mean, we're talking about online right now, mm -hmm. but I think in in-store experiments, which is it's done a lot as well, it's a lot harder to make it double-blind because if you're working in a store, you kind of know that something is going on in the corner over there, right? So, yeah. and so, <laughs> it, so it, it's a lot harder. And, and then there are some people who actually have to set up the experiment and uh, they have to actually install whatever needs to be installed in a store or the store has to be remodeled or something like that. It's a lot harder to make it blind in these kinds of settings. And it's a compromise that you have to be aware of, you know, because when it's not blind, it introduces bias. Hmm. And you need to somehow deal sort of with that bias, you know, when you're thinking about the experiment and when you're thinking about also how to read the experiment once the results come in. I want to talk about the independent variable because it seems that that is kind of what you're doing the experiment for. Would yes. you say that that's true? Is that the first thing you have to figure out is what are you trying to affect? And yes, both. I mean, both the dependent and independent variables, right? So what am I trying to change? And, and how do I actually measure whether something is changing? And so I think they're usually done sort of side by side, but figuring mm -hmm. out the performance variable and the uh, independent variable, yeah, they're both sides. Now, it turns out that, you know, in a lot of settings, like in online settings, they have a, a pretty good set of metrics, you know, that they use all the time. You know, they mm -hmm. have certain KPIs, key performance indicators. You know, they may, for example, focus on conversion. And they have a pretty good sense of how they're measuring whether something is successful on, on a landing page. And so that's kind of all set up. And, and in fact, it's sometimes even wired into the system that that's kind of automatically picked up. In fact, companies that sort of do this very well, they monitor lots of different KPIs. Some companies even automate these KPIs where they, in fact, when you run an experiment and you see something unusually happen, you know, that the system automatically tells you kind of what's going on. It kind of almost sets off an alarm sometimes. You know, Microsoft, for example, has an alarm that's called the too-good-to-be-true alarm. That is, mm -hmm. you're running an experiment and something, there's a big change that you're observing. And it could be either that you're, that you're running a kick-ass experiment <laughs> or it could be that someone really screwed something up. It's an alarm you know, that kind of goes off. It's a little bit like, you know, I used to work in manufacturing. It's a little bit an mm -hmm. alarm in a, in a process control chart. Something unusual is happening and it kind of, it's, a, it's an outlier and they do that and then they need to investigate. Yeah. And there are examples, yeah. there are great examples actually when that happened at Microsoft and which led to some really surprises. How are some of those bigger companies innovating and using experimentation? Well, it may help a little bit, Jenna, maybe to maybe take a step back and seeing sort of, so what does experimentation have to do with innovation to begin with, right? Yeah. And uh, Yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let me sort of give you maybe the, the quick version, you know, uh, you know, as you know, I have a new book coming out and it's actually explained in detail in the book, but let me give you sort of the quick version of this. And so one of the big challenges that we face in innovation is, of course, uncertainty. I mean, one of the reasons why we're innovating is that we don't know what's working and what's not working. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you know, if we already knew what works and what doesn't work, it probably wouldn't be an innovation. You know, <laughs> not this is what you have when you when you have novelty. And so it involves uncertainty. 
And there are different kinds of uncertainties that we face you know, every day when we're trying to innovate. There's R&D uncertainty. If you've got a big R&D department, you know, and they're trying to figure out whether something works as intended, whether it's a product, a service, or a technology. Then you've got what I call scale-up uncertainty. There are some folks who are trying to scale up a service or scaling up the production of a product. They're trying to figure out whether something works at high volume, at high quality, at reasonable cost. And then there are, of course, the marketing folks, you know, that worry about customer experience uncertainty. You know, just because mm-hmm. R&D and production, you know, they can get something to work doesn't mean that a customer wants it. So they worry about, is there a need out there? Our customers are actually telling us the truth. Do they really want it? Are they willing to pay for it? And so on. And then, of course, there's what I call business uncertainty. If I'm running a business, I need to make an investment. And I want to know whether the you know, the ROI on the investment is high enough to make it worthwhile. So, so there are lots of uncertainties that we face every single day. So how do, we, how do we actually deal with these uncertainties traditionally? Well, first, most people rely on experience. The problem is, you know, even if you have 10, 20 years of experience, the problem with experience is often is that it gets it wrong. In fact, mm-hmm. it turns out that in the online world, you know, and I've talked to a lot of companies, turns out that they're wrong about nine out of 10 times when they're launching an experiment. So we're more likely to be wrong than to be right, especially when it comes to predicting customer behavior. Now, you may say, okay, Stefan, great, but don't we have big data now? You know, we do a lot of analytics, big data, and so forth. That's all really cool. But the problem with big data analytics is that when you're doing the analysis, you're getting correlations. You're running regressions. I mean, there are a lot of sort of methods, you know, to mine the data, but you're getting correlations. Correlations just means that, you know, when you're observing again, the, you know, variables that they just change together, but it doesn't actually tell you whether one causes the other, you know? And, and so now, I mean, I think you kind of get where I'm going and, you know, we have a lot of what I call nonsense correlations. And did you know, for example, Jenna, that there's a a strong correlation between the size of your palm and your life expectancy? The smaller your palm, the longer you live. Now, don't look at your palm right now. (laughs) It's really hard. They're tiny. They're tiny. Well, good for you. But, you know, the underlying causal variable, of course, is gender, you know, Mm. because women on average have smaller palms and they also tend to, on average, live longer and so forth. So there are lots of things like that. So, that leaves us with experiments because a well-run experiment, the kinds of experiments that I just described, actually do tell us something about cause and effect. And so the idea would be here, yes, you can use experience, you can use data analytics and all those sorts of things, but you need to complement it with experiments. Otherwise, you can really go astray. And so that's now the connection back to innovation. Mm-hmm. That's why... You know, experiments are so critical to innovation because it's a way of dealing with uncertainty. Mm-hmm. It's, in fact, a very powerful way of dealing with uncertainty. And I always tell people, you know, when I teach around here, is I look at experimentation as being the engine of innovation. And it's like the engine in a car. You know, if you don't have an engine, the car isn't moving. Then, in fact, experiments have always been a big driver of innovation. And what has changed is that experiments have gotten really cheap now and that the kinds of tools that we have at our disposal and the channels that we have are just more powerful than anything that we've ever seen before. Yeah, we're kind of able to 
do it on a very, very small scale, but with a large amount of data and people. Yeah, you could do a lot of things like that, you know, Jenna. It's it's really fascinating. You could well, you could do it at large scale because if you have enough traffic, if you look at a company like say booking.com, which I've looked at very closely, you know, they have something like five hundred to seven hundred million visitors a month. And so you got a lot of traffic you can work with. Mm-hmm. You know, you can run a lot of experiments and they they, they do. They you know they run tens of thousands of experiments a year, live experiments on you and me. And uh, by the way, others do as well. Amazon does the same. They're experimenting on you and me, Netflix, I mean, all these companies. But you can also do it at a smaller scale too, you know, like in-store experiments, you know, brick and mortar. And that's done as well, where the sample sizes are much smaller. And when you go into small sample sizes, you know, the math changes a little bit. So you have to you have to actually uh, rely more on big data methods to complement mm-hmm. sort of, you know, of course, the issues there. There's a thing in statistics called the power of an experiment, the powered experiments. And it, it has to do with sample size and, and the effect that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. But all these methods, you know, they're, they're specialized methods, you know, that, that you use for small sample sizes can then sort of come in here and help you actually work with even smaller sample sizes and, and still get sort of useful results out of it. Is there a, a sample size that is just, you can't learn anything from that? <laughs> it's a little bit of a tricky question, right? <laughs> yes. I mean, typically, you know, in, in an online environment, you, we want to have a few thousand at least, you know, it's a little tricky because it depends on the effect that you're looking for. When you're looking at like big step changes, it turns out that, you know, the larger the changes, the smaller sample sizes you need because, and just intuitively, mm. right, because you've got something that you're testing, you're changing, and you want to basically detect sort of whether it's different from all the background noise that it is. And of course, when you're testing something bigger, it's a lot easier to detect something you know, relative to some background noise that you have. So it turns out that if you take really small changes, like small, really tiny incremental changes, you need much larger sample sizes to know whether the changes are significant or not. It's a little tricky, right? I mean, you could imagine, I mean, in an ideal world, if you could hold everything constant, like every tiny variables, you know, I mean, you could even run an experiment with, you know, two identical twins. If their DNA is the same, if everything is exactly mm-hmm. the same, all you really need is, you know, you change one variable and if you can hold everything else the same. But of course, that's completely unrealistic because it never mm-hmm. happens. Even in controlled experiments in an engineering setting, you cannot do that. Even in a perfect laboratory, you cannot hold everything exactly the same. So you will always need some sort of some sample size you you'll never be able to get it down to one it's just not possible but we've seen good experiments that are run again in a brick and mortar setting you know of sample sizes say 50 or 100 or something it's possible you can even go below that but again you need to complement it you know with other techniques big data methods and so forth and the powers and the controls if you have really really good controls you know, then of course you can get away with smaller sample sizes as well. So there's a lot of different factors that, you know, I have a whole chapter dedicated to it <laughs> called what makes a good experiment. And the whole chapter kind of goes through all the different things you kind of need to think about, you know, if mm-hmm. you want to design a good experiment. Yeah. So in the marketing sense, you know, we've kind of touched on what an experiment is and what makes it good. And is it different than language we would use a split test well a split test is a form of experiment 
Mm-hmm. And what you're doing, kind of, you're splitting sort of the test. You have sort of two groups that you're sort mm-hmm. of testing things on. That's kind of one type of experiment that you can run. You know, it's also called an A/B test often. Mm-hmm. You know, which has now I think gotten quite popular, and that's an important one. And I think A/B tests are sort of used a lot, and they're very powerful. But there are other kinds of experiments as well that you run. You know, A/B testing has just become very, very popular. You know, again, I've been doing this for a long time. Experiments are used sort of for different purposes. You know, one kind of experiment or one kind of class of experiment that I think is used a lot, especially A/B tests, is what I call optimization experiments, where you're trying to really optimize the performance of something. Like, for example, a landing page. You know, right. you go to Amazon or you go to Booking.com or any of these companies, and you see the landing page. You know, everything that you see there. I mean, everything, you know, the position of the buttons, the colors, the fonts, font sizes, you know, the checkout prices, everything has gone through an experimentation process, a testing mm-hmm. and A-B testing process where they did side-by-side comparisons and they know that it works. And in fact, they know it better than yourself. <laughs> and, and in fact, sometimes, and I've run into this as well, people will tell me, yes, but if they tested this, you know, how come the website has that feature, which I really hate? And I usually tell them, you know, they know it because it works and they know you better than you know yourself. You may hate it, but they know that it works on you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so these are kind of optimizations. And what you want to do in these kinds of optimization tests is you want to have some sort of a cause and effect relationship. That's why these are tiny tests. You know, they usually make small changes. They try to, again, do the kinds of things that we just talked about, having really good controls in there, randomized and everything, to make sure that when they change the font size, that they can link it immediately to, to conversion. And so they know that that change causes something else to happen. So that's, you know, and a lot of tests are done that way, or a lot of experiments are run that way. Then, of course, there are other kinds of experiments as well, which I call more exploratory kind of experiments. Mm-hmm. The tricky thing here is... Is there you kind of want to just get a sense of direction. You know, for example, let's say I've got a landing page and I want to maybe completely change my landing page, like completely. And I want to get a sense of direction, you know, what's likely to happen, you know, if I take them in this direction. Is this going to be a complete dud? You know, is conversion going to drop by like 95% (laughs) or is this going to be a surprise uplift or something like that? I can't really link cause and effect because I'm changing too many variables at the same time. But I want to get a sense of direction. And once I get the sense of direction, I can explore maybe some new elements, which I can then work into kind of the optimization kinds of tests again. And so there are different kinds of experiments that I want to run, which have a different purpose. And of course, you know, what you can conclude from them is very different as well because the level of rigor is very different. But I think we should, think about experiments in a much more holistic way than just think about them as A, B, or split tests. Mm. Okay. So that's all like marketing, online marketing, those A, B tests. It's those small optimizations and even, you know, changing something. But when it comes to like a brick and mortar business, Mm -hmm. um, you know, where you said the variables and the constants aren't always so constant and sometimes the sample sizes are kind of small. Um, Mm -hmm. What are some successful brick-and-mortar experiments that you've seen work or that you would recommend people give a shot? Sure. So uh, let me give you an example of what something 
like this may look like. So mm -hmm. this is a real experiment that was run by Coles. So imagine the following, right? So they've got a consulting company that comes to them and tell them, listen, we figured out a way how you can save a lot of money, you know, cut down, I don't know, cost by, I don't know, by maybe tens of millions of dollars. And here's our proposal. Why didn't you open your stores an hour later? Right, because if you store open your stores an hour later, you can cut on operating costs, and it's actually very easy to figure out sort of what these cost savings are. You know, figuring out sort of the cost side is in some ways almost trivial because we can kind of work through the spreadsheets very quickly. The challenge, of course, is if you're the boss, right? If you're you know running you know the retail business or the CEO even of calls, is to decide whether this is actually a good thing to do. Because, of course, you're worried about the revenue side of things. You know, that is, you know, if I open my stores an hour later, what kind of impact on revenue will this have? You know, I could go ahead and do this. And if my revenue tanks, you know, all the cost savings that I get sort of uh, are, are really sort of meaningless. Mm. And so how do you find that out? Now, traditionally, the way we've done this, and I, I would presume that it's still done in a lot of environments where it would go out and saying, well, let's just open the store hours an hour later and see what happens. <laughs> well, do I really want to do this? You know, there are lots of stores out there and, you know, the cost of doing this could be severe. And then at the end, I still don't know whether the change that I'm observing has to do with the store hours or whether maybe something else happened. You know, maybe there's been a change. And if I do it regionally, for example, let's say I pick maybe a market, say the New England market, turns out maybe there was a snowstorm during that time and I don't mm -hmm. know whether that affected it and so forth. And so what they did, so they had a very clear hypothesis here and the clear hypothesis was, you know, if we open our stores an hour later, you know, would this result in a significant drop in sales? I guess a question, and you could write it as a hypothesis, a measurable hypothesis, and they ended up doing the experiment. So rather than doing this, they actually picked about 100 of the company stores. They randomized the test sort of across different regions, and they ran the experiment in a way that they could actually link cause and effect. And it turns out that when they ran the experiment, the experiment actually told them that it will not have a significant sort of impact on sales. Mm -hmm. And now you could actually make the change with confidence, mm -hmm. you know, rather than, you know, making the change and then just, you know, folding your hands and praying that nothing will happen. <laughs> you know, yeah. hope, hope is not a good management method. <laughs> <laughs> and I know at Digital Marketer, a big thing we do is we're like, oh, I want to see if blah, blah, blah will happen if we do this. And we're like, cool, test it. And then yes. it's like, test it. <laughs> we just, you know, you just do it. And then there's not a lot of the actual structured measuring that can come with it. How do you make sure that you are measuring all the right things? Because like you said earlier, sometimes there's correlations and yeah. you're trying to affect one thing and it's actually, maybe you actually find out it's a correlation um, instead of a causation. So should you be measuring multiple things and how do you figure out what those are? So, so the, the issue of causation is solved very easily, right? That's why you use a control because if you sort of hold one thing constant, so you have one thing, which is your control, that's kind of your status quo. That thing is constant. And then you have the treatment, which is 
your control plus that one change. Mm. And then you randomize everything else where you're distributing basically all the noises across all the different subtrain. So when you do that, then at the end, you can conclude with confidence that one causes the other. But without a control, I will never know. You know, mm. I could just get correlations. I mean, that's the power of doing it at the same time with a control. And that's the power of experiments. Now, Jenna, you also raise another really important point, and that is, you know, hey, if I just don't know, I'll just run the test. But I think in a lot of organizations, that's not really how it's done because, you know, people have very strong opinions, you know, they have their own intuitions. And, you know, if anything, sometimes we find that there's reluctance sometimes to, to run the test. There was a great one, you know, Microsoft, I don't know if you've heard this before, there was a great story about a Microsoft employee who actually had an idea just like what you just described sort of at Bing. And they had an idea about, you know, changing the way it displayed ad headlines, you know, so they just made some movements about moving some of the text that's actually below the headline into the headline and so forth. And, you know, they get a lot of these ideas every day. And the manager sort of thought not much of it. And, you know, the thing was kind of just shelved for about six months or so until the employee finally kind of ran out of patience and mm. decided just to run the experiment, just to launch it. Right when the employee launched, it only took a few days actually of making the change. The experiment was launched and then Microsoft had this, what I described earlier, you know, a good to be true alarm. It stopped the experiment. You know, it kind of went automatically off. Bang. You have to imagine now, like, you know, an alarm goes off. Too mm -hmm. good to be true. And usually what they know from experience is whenever the alarm goes off, it's usually a coding error. You know, someone wants to make a change and they make an error and, you know, something odd happens. And But they can't find an error. You know, code looks good. <laughs> so they run it again. Same problem again. Too good to be true. And then they finally realize that the effect is real. And they do an analysis, and it turns out that that small change, or presumably small change, increased revenue by an astonishing 12%. Or that was more than $100 million in the U.S. alone wow. that year. And, of course, more than $100 million in subsequent years. And so what made the difference? Well, what made the difference is the ability for an employee just to run the test. Hmm. If the ex employee had never run the test, nobody would have ever known that that change resulted in that uptick, huge uptick in revenue. So it's all about opportunity cost, and that's just so hard to measure. We're so great at measuring cost, mm -hmm. right? You know, like the downside, you know, of, of an experiment, you know, how much it costs us to do it. But it's really difficult sort of to measure the opportunities like the what if, because mm. we won't know un unless we do it. So you have to allow people to just to do it. And, and I, as I told you earlier, right, and they're finding that, you know, in, in all these tests, about nine out of 10 experiments that they run have either a null effect, that means there's no significant change to something that we're interested in, or it actually has the opposite effect. It actually leads to, you know, if we think it's an increase in conversion, it actually leads to a decrease in conversion. So we're wrong most of the time. <laughs> so what's the answer to this, Jenna? Of course, to run lots of these experiments. Let's say, you know, our hit rate is only 10%, but if we're running 1,000, you know, we're still getting 100 good ones hmm. that will help us basically to impact some metric that we care about. And if we just have one or two, just like you know, what Microsoft found, you know, 100 million, I mean, that has a huge impact. On revenue, the worst case 
I think to me, the worst place to be in is to maybe run maybe 10 or so a year, just a really small number, because mm. you could be running the whole year and never get a success. Yeah, yeah, if the success rate is at that low. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, who cares? If we're running enough experiments, whether the success rate is 10 or 20% is not that important. In fact, sometimes it's even better to have a smaller success rate because that tells you that people are trying things that are a little riskier. Hmm. If the success rate were like 90%, I would get really nervous because they're probably trying things they already know that work. And so wow. they're just validating, they're just validating or verifying something that they already know and they're actually not taking any risk. That's huge. Yeah. When it comes to, like you were saying before, the opportunity cost, how do you measure experiments against one another? So when you're trying to decide which experiments and you're trying to prioritize which ones to be running, how do you do that? You know, it's very difficult to prioritize experiments ahead of time if you don't know what's likely to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, what you can do is, and this is why I think the role of also senior executives sort of come in, you can actually compare them against some larger objective. I think the role of executives in sort of in these kinds of settings is to set what I call a grand challenge. Mm -hmm. So what is sort of the grand challenge that we're working towards rather than just people doing kind of willy-nilly experiments? You know, they need to work sort of towards something bigger. So a grand challenge could be saying, you know, we want to create sort of the best kick-ass, you know, customer experience in our sort of industry online or something like that or Mm -hmm. or in source and so that's a grand challenge and then we need to kind of figure out what kind of experiments help us towards you know meeting that grand challenge and then you have you know some of them are more optimizing kind of experiments where trying to kind of change one variable at a time and trying to go after maybe smaller things or i could have sort of the exploration type of experiments where i'm sort of going after bigger things and i need to think about it sort of as a portfolio Now, the question, of course, that I get asked a lot is about the ROI, right? So what's the return Mm -hmm. of investment of doing these experiments? Again, the problem is it's very difficult to know this ahead of time if you don't know what the result is, you know, what is the ROI. (laughs) You know, I used to patiently explain this to folks. And then at some point, you know, I'm now just give them a really brief answer. I ask them, what's the ROI on breathing? You know, <laughs> because <laughs> if you if you really believe that you know experimentation is the way to go, mm-hmm. how do you put a number on that? You know, I mean, you'll you'll have to run the experiments to find out. You know, nobody would sort of start calculating the ROI on breathing, and uh, <laughs> it, it's something that we have to do. And you know, it's it has to be second nature to an organization. So that's why I call in the book, I call these organizations experimentation organizations. And an experimentation organization, you know, experimentation is democratized and running experiments becomes like running the numbers. You know, nobody would mm-hmm. ever question a financial analysis. It's kind of expected when you're trying to propose something that you do some mm-hmm. kind of a financial analysis and nobody would ever question that. Well, experiments have to be like that as well. You know, when you go into a meeting, and you're discussing something or you want to make a decision, you know, coming into the meeting with an experiment or the results of an experiment have to be second nature, just like you're going into the meeting with a financial analysis. Mm-hmm. So in, in that case, everyone is responsible 
Yes. For experimentation. Everyone, this is the nirvana, right? So the, the, <laughs> the final stage of, of course, it, you know, it takes a while to get there. And in fact, you know, many companies start out much smaller. I mean, even the companies that we look up to today, the ones who are running tens of thousands of, of experiments, they all started small as well. They didn't run, you know, 10,000 experiments on day one in the first year. Right. You know, they started out maybe with a few dozen experiments and they also started out by maybe having a small group within the company that owns this capability and they help others, they educate others and they evangelize, you know, they go out and explain to others what to do. They make sure that the tools are right and so forth. That, that's how you begin. But then at some point you have to scale it. Again, in the book, I have multiple stages, kind of almost an evolution that an organization has to go through. Uh, I call it the A, B, C, D, E framework. You know, it's mm. good marketing language, I suppose. <laughs> it's easy to remember A, B, C, D, E. <laughs> if anything remembering, A to me is awareness, B is belief, C is commitment, D is diffusion, and E is embeddedness. And mm. so you go through these stages, you know, I, I think most people are aware nowadays that this is really important. But to go from awareness to believe, that means in belief, you have to adopt the framework. You have to go beyond just saying we're trying things. Mm-hmm. You have to have a rigorous framework in place. You have to get the tools. And in the commitment phase, you have to allocate resources. You have to set up your organization sort of for this to happen. So you have to th- rethink how you organize your company. And then in the diffusion stage, you have to widen the scope and you have to and essentially diffuse it across the organization, have people sort of mm-hmm. own it. And then the ultimate stage is sort of uh, the democratizing experiment sort of stage where basically anybody in an organization can run an experiment without permission and uh, management kind of gets out of the way. I like that. <laughs> I <laughs> yes. like that a lot. <laughs> I mean, the whole role of management is really interesting sort of in all this, right? Sort of mm-hmm. what is exactly the role of management? Because it's hard because we train managers to be decision makers. Mm-hmm. But in this kind of setup, we're basically telling managers, I mean, even you have to go being and sometimes saying, I don't know, you have to be humble. You mm-hmm. have to admit, you know, that you cannot predict the future. And so there's a different role, I think, for management or for leadership. And I think the roles, first of all, is what I refer to as the grand challenge, right? They have to set their grand challenge. Second, they have to make sure that the resources are in place, that we have the right infrastructure, the right organizational form and all the things, you know, you have to enable people to do it Mm -hmm. because if you make it hard, you know, people won't do it. And then third, which I think is really important as well, and that because it's a cultural thing, they need to live by the same rules. Hmm. That is, you know, if they make a decision, they have to be willing to have that decision challenged by an experiment as much as it is challenged by wow. anybody sort of in the company. And that's not so easy. I have a, a just a quick anecdote. A whole chapter is on booking.com and, you know, how, which is, in my view, an experimentation organization. They're really, it's pretty amazing what they do. But there was a, a new CEO who came in and sat down and they have a discussion around sort of a new corporate logo. And, you know, the CEO then says, okay, I made the decision. This is what it's going to look like. And then someone looks at him and says, that's an interesting proposal. We'll run the test and let you know what happens. Oh. And, <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I wasn't there, but I would have loved to see the face yeah. of that CEO. <laughs> that to me is a healthy culture, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, everybody has to live by the same rules. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I love that. Well, we're getting kind of to the end of the hour. So before I ask you the one question we always ask every new guest, first, just let everyone know about the book, about where to reach out to you, how to contact you or learn more. Perfect. So the book is called Experimentation Works, The Surprising Power of Business Experiments. Again, Experimentation Works, The Surprising Power of Business Experiments. It's launching today, February 18, (laughs) yes. So available everywhere in all the bookstores, you know, online bookstores, brick-and-mortar bookstores. I can be reached on email. I have a very simple email, the letter T, just T, at HBS, like Harvard Business School. Uh, How'd you get that one? (laughs) You know, people have asked me this before, Jenna, and you know what my answer is? I asked for it. You know, sometimes you just have to ask. And, you know, our IT folks said, that's interesting. <laughs> Nobody ever asked us before. Yes, you can have it. Of course, then all my colleagues found out and then the letters were gone very quickly. That's fine. But, uh, <laughs> so t at edu. You can also send me a note on LinkedIn. Just mention maybe the podcast sort of where you heard me so I know what it is about, you know, so I know that you're interested in it. I just get a lot of random requests and <laughs> I'd love to have a community of people that are as excited about experiments as I am. Mm-hmm. And so that's another way to reach me or just go to my, you know, website, www.thomkey.com, which will take you directly to my Harvard Business School website which has, you know, access to lots of publications, you know, Mm -hmm. that I've written about and so forth. And uh, it's an exciting time. Uh, Today, by the way, if you go online, you will also see that Harvard Business Review also launched a special issue today, or actually a normal issue today. (laughs) So Harvard Business Review launched a sort of next issue today, and the cover is about creating an experimentation culture. So they have a number of articles in there. It's exciting. So I think... Uh, Jenna, I think this is a movement. Mm-hmm. This Absolutely. Is much more, this is much more than just an interesting, you know, fad or anything like this. Is we're, mm-hmm. we're heading towards something really big. It's a movement. It's something I think that's going to be absolutely critical for competition. People have told me this, you know, when, when I talk to them, executives who really understand sort of what this is all about. And it, it is, is really, really, truly exciting, you know experimentation sort of is the way to go and it's been the way to go for a long time i think it's gonna get even more interesting as more and more companies do that so i would encourage everybody of course uh you know get the book (laughs) (laughs) the book has a lot more sort of details in it but also sort of become an experimenter sort of both Mm -hmm. maybe in life but also at work yeah. And in fact, some executives, some CEOs told me that they believe in their industry, this is really about survival. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, they've told me, and I, I have it on the record in the book as well, they said, you know, either you do this or you will die as a company mm-hmm. because this is where sort of the future of competition lies. And in fact, it's not just the future, as I think William Gibson once said, you know, the fiction writer says, the future is already here. It's just not very evenly distributed <laughs> that is you know that there are some companies that are already in the future and then mm-hmm. some companies that are trying to catch up so i would just encourage everybody especially sort of in digital marketing which is an obvious place for this oh yeah is to kind of fully bo- go into this and i think this this is i think a revolution in the way sort of mm-hmm. marketing works too yeah it's a self-propelled evolution 
Yes, wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the final question is, if you could go back in time and tell little Stefan, the one who had the summer job, anything at all about life or about experimentation or about business, what would you tell him? I would uh, tell him something that probably at the time he already maybe intuitively knew, but maybe couldn't sort of explicitly express is the power of products. Mm. I'm a big product guy. I believe that, you know, great products are almost everything. And what does that mean? That means that if you have a great product, a kick-ass product, you can get away with a lot of things. You know, Mm. you can get away with like average finance, even average marketing. (laughs) You can get away with a lot of things because customers will come back over and over again. And I think a company like Apple is probably a case in point. You know, got a great product. But if if your product sucks, you know, there's no amount of finance, marketing, and so forth that's going to save you in the long run. So pay attention to products and invest in making sure that you've got a kick-ass product. And whatever you do, you know, whether you're selling physical products, whether you're selling products that are more online products, whether you create experiences, because having sort of these kick-ass experiences, you know, create tremendous customer stickiness. And I think that's where most of our energy should go. And I think that's what people like Steve Jobs understood. You know, I spend a lot of time looking at Apple and he made sure that most of his time that he spent as an executive actually went into making sure that they have these kinds of products. And, mm-hmm. and you see it over and over again, whether you're going to a great hotel and they have a kick-ass customer service mm-hmm. and you know that they're putting an enormous effort into sort of all the little details that make it amazing. And you'll remember it forever and you'll come back over and over again. So hopefully, maybe little Stefan back then, <laughs> you know, didn't know this, but even little Stefan sort of enjoyed sort of, you know, good products or looking at good products. That Maybe at the time, good little Stefan was too poor to buy <laughs> these products. But at the time, I think intuitively, maybe, you know, I was on that track already. So that's what I tell him. Yeah. Awesome. Very insightful. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me, Jenna. Yeah, of course. And to everyone out there listening, thank you so much for a little bit of your day each week. We'll see you next week. Same time, same place. Goodbye. And thank you, Stefan. <laughs> thanks, Jenna. Goodbye. See you soon. Hey, DM listeners, if you're running a Black Friday or Cyber Monday special, listen up, because Digital Marketer just released our Canva holiday promo pack. It includes almost 200 templates that you can use to make the graphics for all your upcoming holiday specials and three unique design themes for each holiday. The promo pack is usually $27, but you can get it today for free. Check the show notes for the link to download, or you can go directly to digitalmarketer.com forward slash LP forward slash holiday templates. That's digitalmarketer.com forward slash LP forward slash holiday templates.